The Fires of Ashurbanipal, The Mythos Version, by Robert E. Howard. Yar Ali squinted carefully down the blue barrel of his Lee Enfield, called devoutly on Allah, and sent a bullet through the brain of a flying rider. Allahu Akbar! The big Afghan shouted in glee, waving his weapon above his head. God is great! By Allah Sahib, I have sent another of the dogs to hell! His companion peered cautiously over the rim of the sand pit they had scooped with their hands. He was a lean and wiry American, Steve Clarney by name. Good work, old horse, said this person. Four left. Look, they're drawing off. The white-robed horsemen were indeed reining away, clustering together just out of accurate rifle range, as if in council. There had been seven when they had first swooped down on the comrades, but the fire from the two rifles in the sand pit had been deadly. Look, Sahib, they abandoned the fray. Yar Ali stood up boldly and shouted taunts at the departing riders, one of whom whirled and sent a bullet that kicked up sand thirty feet in front of the pit. They shoot like the sons of dogs, said Yar Ali in complacent self-esteem. By Allah, did you see that rogue plunge from his saddle as my lead went home? Up, Sahib, let us run after them and cut them down. Paying no attention to this outrageous proposal, for he knew it was but one of the gestures Afghan nature continually demands, Steve rose, dusted off his breeches, and, gazing after the riders, now white specks far out on the desert, said musingly, Those fellows ride as if they had some set purpose in mind, not a bit like men running from a lickin'. Aye, agreed Yar Ali promptly, and seeing nothing inconsistent with his present attitude and recent bloodthirsty suggestion, they ride after more of their kind. They are hawks who give up their prey not quickly. We had best move our position quickly, Steve Sahib. They will come back, maybe in a few hours, maybe in a few days. It all depends on how far away lies the oasis of their tribe. But they will be back. We have guns and lives. They want both. And behold... The Afghan levered out the empty shell and slipped a single cartridge into the breech of his rifle. My last bullet, Sahib. Steve nodded. I've got three left. The raiders, whom their bullets had knocked from their saddle, had been looted by their own comrades. No use searching the bodies which lay in the sand for ammunition. Steve lifted his canteen and shook it. Not much water remained. He knew that Yar Ali had only a little more than he, though the big Afridi, bred in a barren land, had used and needed less water than did the American, although the latter, judged from a white man's standards, was hard and tough as a wolf. As Steve unscrewed the canteen cap and drank very sparingly, he mentally reviewed the chain of events that had led them to their present position. Wanderers, soldiers of fortune thrown together by chance and attracted to each other by mutual admiration, he and Yar Ali had wandered from India up through Turkestan and down through Persia, an oddly assorted but highly capable pair. Driven by the restless urge of inherent wanderlust, their avowed purpose, which they swore to and sometimes believed themselves, was the accumulation of some vague and undiscovered treasure, some pot of gold at the foot of some yet unborn rainbow. Then, in ancient Shiraz, they had heard of the fire of Ashurbanipal. From the lips of an ancient Persian trader, who only half believed what he repeated to them, they heard the tale that he in turn had heard from the babbling lips of delirium in his distant youth. He had been a member of a caravan fifty years before, which, wandering far on the southern shore of the Persian Gulf trading for pearls, had followed the tale of a rare pearl far into the desert. The pearl, rumored found by a diver and stolen by a sheik of the interior, they did not find, but they did pick up a Turk who was dying of starvation, thirst, and a bullet wound in the thigh. As he died in delirium, he babbled a wild tale of a silent dead city of black stone set in the drifting sands of the desert far to the westward, and of a flaming gem clutched in the bony fingers of a skeleton on an ancient throne.
He had not dared bring it away with him because of an overpowering, brooding horror that haunted the place, and thirst had driven him into the desert again, where Bedouins had pursued and wounded him. Yet he had escaped, riding hard until his horse fell under him. He died without telling how he had reached the mythical city in the first place, but the old trader thought he must have come from the northwest, a deserter from the Turkish army making a desperate attempt to reach the gulf. The men of the caravan had made no attempt to plunge still further into the desert in search of the city, for, said the old trader, they believed it to be the ancient, ancient city of evil, spoken of in the Necronomicon of the mad Arab Al-Hazred, the city of the dead on which an ancient curse rested. Legends named it vaguely. The Arabs called it Beled el-Jin, the city of devils, and the Turks Karasher, the black city and the gem was that ancient and accursed jewel belonging to a king of long ago, whom the Grecians called Sardanapalus, and the Semitic peoples Ashurbanipal. Steve had been fascinated by the tale, admitting to himself that it was doubtless one of the ten thousand cock-and-bull myths mooted about the East. Still, there was a possibility that he and Yar Ali had stumbled onto a trace of that pot of rainbow gold for which they had searched, and Yar Ali had heard hints before of a silent city of the sands, Tales had followed the eastbound caravans after the high Persian uplands and across the sands of Turkestan into the mountain country and beyond. Vague tales, whisper of a black city of the jinns, deep in the hazes of a haunted desert. So, following the trail of the legend, the companions had come from Shiraz to a village on the Arabian shore of the Persian Gulf, and there had heard more from an old man who had been a pearl diver in his youth. The loquacity of age was on him, and he told tales repeated to him by wandering tribesmen who had them in turn from the wild nomads of the deep interior, and again Steve and Yar Ali heard of the still black city with giant beasts carved of stone and the skeleton sultan who held the blazing gem. And so, mentally swearing at himself for a fool, Steve had made the plunge, and Yar Ali, secure in the knowledge that all things lay on the lap of Allah, had come with him. Their scanty supply of money had been just sufficient to provide riding camels and provisions for a bold flying invasion of the unknown. Their only chart had been the vague rumors that placed the supposed location of Karasher. There had been days of hard travel, pushing the beasts and conserving water and food. Then, deep in the desert they invaded, they had encountered a blinding sand wind in which they had lost the camels. After that came long miles of staggering through the sands, battered by a flaming sun, subsisting on rapidly dwindling water from their canteens and food Yar Ali had in a pouch. No thought of finding the mythical city now. They pushed on blindly in hope of stumbling upon a spring. They knew that behind them no oases lay within a distance they could hope to cover on foot. It was a desperate chance, but their only one. Then white-clad hawks had swooped down on them out of the haze of the skyline, and from a shallow and hastily scooped trench, the adventurers had exchanged shots with the wild riders who circled them at top speed. The bullets of the Bedouin had skipped through their makeshift fortifications, knocking dust in their eyes and flicking bits of cloth from their garments, but by good chance neither had been hit. Their one bit of luck, reflected Clarney, as he cursed himself for a fool. What a mad venture it had been, anyway. To think that two men could so dare the desert and live, much less wrest from its abysmal bosom the secrets of the ages and that crazy tale of a skeleton hand gripping a flaming jewel in a dead city. Bosh! What utter rot! He must have been crazy himself to credit it, the American decided, with the clarity of view that suffering and danger bring. Well, old horse, said Steve, lifting his rifle, let's get going. It's a toss-up if we die of thirst or get sniped off by the Desert Brothers. Anyway, we're doing no good here. God gives, agreed Yar Ali cheerfully. The sun sinks westward. 
Soon the coolness of night will be upon us. Perhaps we shall find water yet, Sahib. Look, the terrain changes to the south. Clarny shaded his eyes against the dying sun. Beyond a level, barren expanse of several miles' width, the land did indeed become more broken. Aborted hills were in evidence. The American slung his rifle over his arm and sighed. Eve ahead. We're food for the buzzards anyhow. The sun sank and the moon rose, flooding the desert with weird silver light. Drifted sand glimmered in long ripples as if a sea had suddenly been frozen into immobility. Steve, parched fiercely by a thirst he dared not fully quench, cursed beneath his breath. The desert was beautiful beneath the moon, with the beauty of a cold marble lorelei to lure men to destruction. What a mad quest, his weary brain reiterated. The fire of Ashurbanipal retreated into the mazes of unreality with each dragging step. The desert became not merely a material wasteland, but the gray mists of the lost eons in whose depths dreamed sunken things. Clarney stumbled and swore. Was he failing already? Yar Ali swung along with the easy, tireless stride of the mountain man, and Steve set his teeth, nerving himself to greater effort. They were entering the broken country at last, and the going became harder. Shallow gullies and narrow ravines knifed the earth with wavering patterns. Most of them were nearly filled with sand, and there was no trace of water. "'This country was once oasis country,' commented Yar Ali. "'Allah knows how many centuries ago the sand took it, as the sand has taken so many cities in Turkestan.' They swung on like dead men in a gray land of death. The moon grew red and sinister as she sank, and shadowy darkness settled over the desert before they had reached a point where they could see what lay beyond the broken belt. Even the big Afghan's feet began to drag, and Steve kept himself erect only by a savage effort of will. At last they toiled up a sort of ridge, on the southern side of which the land sloped downward. "'We rest,' declared Steve. "'There's no water in this hellish country. No use in going on forever.' My legs are stiff as gun barrels. Couldn't take another step to save my neck. Here's a kind of stunted cliff about as high as a man's shoulder facing south. We'll sleep in the lee of it. And shall we not keep watch, Steve Sahib? We don't, answered Steve. If the Arabs cut our throats while we're asleep, so much the better. We're goners anyhow. With which optimistic observation, Clarney lay down stiffly in the deep sand. But Yar Ali stood leaning forward, straining his eyes into the elusive darkness that turned the star-flecked horizons to murky wells of shadow. "'Something lies on the skyline to the south,' he muttered uneasily. "'A hill? I cannot tell, or even be sure that I see anything at all.' "'You're seeing mirages already,' said Steve irritably. "'Lie down and sleep.' And so saying, Steve slumbered. The sun in his eyes awoke him. He sat up, yawning, and his first sensation was that of thirst. He lifted his canteen and wet his lips. One drink left. Yar Ali still slept. Steve's eyes wandered over the southern horizon and he started. He kicked the recumbent Afghan. Hey, wake up, Ali. I reckon you weren't seeing things after all. There's your hill. And a queer-looking one, too. The Afridi woke as a wild thing wakes, instantly and completely, his hand leaping to a long knife as he glared about for enemies. His gaze followed Steve's pointing fingers and his eyes widened. "'By Allah, and by Allah,' he swore, "'we have come into a land of jinn. "'That is no hill. "'It is a city of stone in the midst of the sands.' "'Steve bounded to his feet like a steel spring released. "'As he gazed with bated breath, "'a fierce shout escaped his lips. "'At his feet, the slope of the ridge ran down "'into a wide and level expanse of sand "'that stretched away southward, "'and far away, across those sands to his straining sight, "'the hill slowly took shape, "'like a mirage growing from the drifting sands.' 
He saw great, uneven walls, massive battlements. All about crawled the sands like a living, sensate thing, drifted high about the walls, softening the rugged outlines. No wonder that at first glance the hole had appeared like a hill. Karashir! Clarney exclaimed fiercely. Belet el Jin, the city of the dead. It wasn't a pipe dream after all. We found it. By heaven, we found it. Come on, let's go. Yar Ali shook his head uncertainly and muttered something about evil jinn under his breath, but he followed. The sight of the ruins had swept from Steve his thirst and hunger and the fatigue that a few hours sleep had not fully overcome. He trudged on swiftly, oblivious to the rising heat, his eyes gleaming with the lust of the explorer. It was not altogether greed for the fabled gem that had prompted Steve Clarney to risk his life in that grim wilderness. Deep in his soul lurked the age-old heritage of the white man, the urge to seek out the hidden places of the world, and that urge had been stirred to the depths by the ancient tales. Now as they crossed the level wastes that separated the broken lands from the city, they saw the shattered walls take clearer form and shape as if they grew out of the morning sky. The city seemed built of huge blocks of black stone, but how high the walls had been there was no telling because of the sand that drifted high about their base. In many places they had fallen away, and the sand hid the fragments entirely. The sun reached her zenith, and thirst intruded itself in spite of zeal and enthusiasm. But Steve fiercely mastered his suffering. His lips were parched and swollen, but he would not take that last drink until he had reached the ruined city. Yar Ali wet his lips from his own canteen and tried to share the remainder with his friend. Steve shook his head and plodded on. In the ferocious heat of the desert afternoon they reached the ruin, and, passing through a wide breach in the crumbling wall, gazed on the dead city. Sand choked the ancient streets and lent fantastic form to huge, fallen, and half-hidden columns. So crumbled into decay and so covered with sand was the hole that the explorers could make out little of the original plan of the city. Now it was but a waste of drifted sand and crumbling stone over which brooded, like an invisible cloud, an aura of unspeakable antiquity. But directly in front of them ran a broad avenue, the outline of which not even the ravaging sands and winds of time had been able to efface. On either side of the wide way were ranged huge columns, not unusually tall, even allowing for the sand that hid their bases, but incredibly massive. On the top of each column stood a figure carved from solid stone, great somber images, half-human, half-bestial, partaking of the brooding brutishness of the whole city. Steve cried out in amazement. The winged bulls of Nineveh! The bulls with men's heads! By the saints, Ali, the old tales are true! The Assyrians did build this city. The whole tale's true! They must have come here when the Babylonians destroyed Assyria. Why, this scene's a dead ringer for pictures I've seen. Reconstructed scenes of old Nineveh. And look! He pointed down the broad street to the great building which reared at the other end. A colossal brooding edifice whose columns and walls of solid black stone blocks defied the winds and sands of time. The drifting, obliterating sea washed about its foundations, overflowing into its doorways, but it would require a thousand years to inundate the whole structure. "'An abode of devils,' muttered Yar Ali uneasily. "'The Temple of Baal!' exclaimed Steve. "'Come on! I was afraid we'd find all the palaces and temples hidden by the sand and have to dig for the gem.' "'Little good it will do us,' muttered Yar Ali. "'Here we die.' "'I reckon so,' Steve unscrewed the cap of his canteen. "'Let's take our last drink.' Anyway, we're safe from the Arabs. They never dare come here with their superstitions. We'll drink and then we'll die, I reckon. But first we'll find the jewel. When I pass out, I want to have it in my hand. Maybe a few centuries later, some lucky son of a gun will find our skeletons and the gem. Here's to him, whoever he is. 
With which grim jest, Clarney drained his canteen, and Yar Ali followed suit. They had played their last ace. The rest lay on the lap of Allah. They strode up the Broadway, and Yar Ali, utterly fearless in the face of human foes, glanced nervously to right and left, half expecting to see a horned and fantastic face leering at him from behind a column. Steve himself felt the somber antiquity of the place, and almost found himself fearing a rush of bronze war chariots down the forgotten streets, or to hear the sudden menacing flare of bronze trumpets. The silence in dead cities was so much more intense, he reflected, than that on the open desert. They came to the portals of the great temple. Rows of immense columns flanked the wide doorway, which was ankle-deep in sand, and from which sagged massive bronze frameworks that had once braced mighty doors, whose polished woodwork had rotted away centuries ago. They passed into a mighty hall of misty twilight, whose shadowy stone roof was upheld by columns like the trunks of forest trees. The whole effect of the architecture was one of awesome magnitude and sullen, breathtaking splendor, like a temple built by somber giants for the abode of dark gods. Yar Ali walked fearfully, as if he expected to awake sleeping gods, and Steve, without the Afridi superstitions, yet felt the gloomy majesty of the place lay somber hands on his soul. No trace of a footprint showed in the deep dust on the floor. Half a century had passed since the affrighted and devil-ridden Turk had fled these silent halls. As for the Bedouins, it was easy to see why those superstitious sons of the desert shunned this haunted city, and haunted it was, not by actual ghosts, perhaps, but by the shadows of lost splendors. As they trod the sands of the hall, which seemed endless, Steve pondered many questions. How did these fugitives from the wrath of frenzied rebels build this city? How did they pass through the country of their foes? For Babylonia lay between Assyria and the Arabian desert, yet there had been no other place for them to go. Westward lay Syria and the sea, and north and east swarmed the dangerous Metis, those fierce Aryans whose aid had suffered the arms of Babylon to smite her foe to the dust. Possibly, thought Steve, Karasher, whatever its name had been in those dim days, had been built as an outpost border city before the fall of the Assyrian Empire, where the survivals of that overthrow fled. At any rate, it was possible that Karasher had outlasted Nineveh by some centuries, a strange hermit city, no doubt, cut off from the rest of the world. Surely, as Yar Ali had said, this was once fertile country, watered by oases and doubtless in the broken country they had passed over the night before, there had been quarries that furnished the stone for the building of the city. Then what caused its downfall? Did the encroachment of the sands and the filling up of the springs cause the people to abandon it? Or was Karasher a city of silence before the sands crept over the walls? Did the downfall come from within or without? Did civil war blot out the inhabitants, or were they slaughtered by some powerful foe from the desert? Clarney shook his head in baffled chagrin. The answers to those questions were lost in the maze of forgotten ages. Allahu Akbar! They had traversed the great shadowy hall, and at its farther end they came upon a hideous black stone altar, behind which loomed an ancient god, bestial and horrific. Steve shrugged his shoulders as he recognized the monstrous aspect of the image. Aye, that was Baal, on which black altar in other ages many a screaming, writhing, naked victim had offered up its naked soul. The idol embodied in its utter, abysmal, and sullen bestiality the whole soul of this demoniac city. Surely, thought Steve, the builders of Nineveh and Karasher were cast in another mold from the people of today. Their art and culture were too ponderous, too grimly barren of the lighter aspects of humanity to be wholly human, as modern man understands humanity. Their architecture was repellent, 
of high skill, yet so massive, sullen, and brutish in effect as to be almost beyond the comprehension of moderns. The adventurers passed through a narrow door which opened in the end of the hall close to the idol, and came into a series of wide, dim, dusty chambers connected by column-flanked corridors. Along these they strode in the grey ghostly light, and came at last to a wide stair, whose massive stone steps led upward and vanished in the gloom. Here Yar Ali halted. "'We have dared much, Sahib,' he muttered. "'Is it wise to dare more?' Steve, a quiver with eagerness, yet understood the Afghan's mind. "'You mean we shouldn't go up those stairs?' "'They have an evil look. To what chambers of silence and horror may they lead? When jinn haunt deserted buildings, they lurk in the upper chambers.' At any moment a demon may bite off our heads. We're dead men anyhow, grunted Steve. But I tell you, you go on back through the hall and watch for the Arabs while I go upstairs. Watch for a wind on the horizon, responded the Afghan gloomily, shifting his rifle and loosening his long knife in its scabbard. No Bedouin comes here. Lead on, Sahib. Thou art mad after the manner of all Franks, but I would not leave thee to face the jinn alone. So the companions mounted the massive stairs, their feet sinking deep into the accumulated dust of centuries at each step. Up and up they went to an incredible height until the depths below merged into a vague gloom. "'We walk blind to our doom, Sahib,' muttered Yar Ali. "'Allah il Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Nevertheless, I feel the presence of slumbering evil, and never again shall I hear the wind blowing up the Khyber Pass.' Steve made no reply. He did not like the breathless silence that brooded over the ancient temple, nor the grisly gray light that filtered from some hidden source. Now above them the gloom lightened somewhat, and they emerged into a vast circular chamber, grayly illumined by light that filtered in through the high-pierced ceiling. But another radiance lent itself to the illumination. A cry burst from Steve's lips, echoed by Yar Ali. Standing on the top step of the broad stone stair, they looked directly across the broad chamber with its dust-covered heavy tile floor and bare black stone walls. From about the center of the chamber, massive steps led up to a stone dais, and on this dais stood a marble throne. About this throne glowed and shimmered an uncanny light, and the awe-struck adventurers gasped as they saw its source. On the throne slumped a human skeleton, an almost shapeless mass of moldering bones. A fleshless hand sagged outstretched upon the broad marble throne arm, and in its grisly clasp there pulsed and throbbed like a living thing a great crimson stone. The fire of Ashurbanipal. Even after they had found the lost city, Steve had not really allowed himself to believe that they would find the gem, or that it even existed in reality. Yet he could not doubt the evidence of his eyes, dazzled by that evil, incredible glow. With a fierce shout, he sprang across the chamber and up the steps. Yar Ali was at his heels, but when Steve would have seized the gem, the Afghan laid a hand on his arm. Wait! exclaimed the big Mohammedan. Touch it not yet, Sahib. A curse lies on ancient things, and surely this is a thing triply accursed. Else why has it lain here untouched in a country of thieves for so many centuries? It is not well to disturb the possessions of the dead. Bosh! snorted the American. Superstitions! The Bedouins are scared by the tales that have come down to them from their ancestors. Being desert dwellers, they mistrust cities anyway, and no doubt this one had an evil reputation in its lifetime. Nobody except Bedouins have seen this place before, except that Turk who is probably half demented with suffering. These bones may be those of the king mentioned in the legend. The dry desert air preserves such things indefinitely, but I doubt it. Maybe Assyrian, most likely Arab. Some beggar that got the gem and then died on that throne for some reason or other. The Afghan scarcely heard him. 
He was gazing in fearful fascination at the great stone as a hypnotized bird stares into a serpent's eye. "'Look at it, Sahib,' he whispered. "'What is it? No such gem as this was ever caught by mortal hands. Look how it throbs and pulses like the heart of a cobra.' Steve was looking, and he was aware of a strange, undefined feeling of uneasiness. Well versed in the knowledge of precious stones, he had never seen a stone like this. At first glance, he had supposed it to be a monster ruby, as told in the legends. Now he was not sure, and he had a nervous feeling that Yar Ali was right, that this was no natural normal gem. He could not classify the style in which it was cut, and such was the power of its lurid radiance that he found it difficult to gaze at it closely for any length of time. The whole setting was not one calculated to soothe restless nerves. The deep dust on the floor suggested an unwholesome antiquity, the gray light evoked a sense of unreality, and the heavy black walls towered grimly, hinting at hidden things. "'Let's take the stone and go,' muttered Steve, an unaccustomed panicky dread rising in his bosom. "'Wait!' Yar Ali's eyes were blazing, and he gazed not at the gem but at the solid stone walls. "'We are flies in the lair of the spider. Sahib, as Allah lives, it is more than the ghosts of old fears that lurk over the city of horror. I feel the presence of peril, as I have felt it before.' as I felt it in a jungle cavern where a python lurked unseen in the darkness, as I felt it in the temple of Thagi where the hidden stranglers of Siva crouched to spring upon us, as I feel it now tenfold. Steve's hair prickled. He knew that Yar Ali was a grim veteran, not to be stampeded by silly fear or senseless panic. He well remembered the incidents referred to by the Afghan, as he remembered other occasions upon which Yar Ali's oriental telepathic instinct had warned him of danger before that danger was seen or heard. "'What is it, Yarali?' he whispered. The Afghan shook his head, his eyes filled with a weird, mysterious light as he listened to the dim, occult promptings of his subconscious. "'I know not. I know it is close to us, and that it is very ancient and very evil. I think—' Suddenly he halted and wheeled, the eerie light vanishing from his eyes to be replaced by a glare of wolf-like fear and suspicion. "'Hark, Sahib!' he snapped. "'Ghosts or dead men mount the stairs!' Steve stiffened as the stealthy pad of soft sandals on stone reached his ears. "'By Judas, Ali,' he rapped. "'Something's out there.' The ancient walls re-echoed to a chorus of wild yells as a horde of savage figures flooded the chamber. For one dazed, insane instant, Steve believed wildly that they were being attacked by re-embodied warriors of a vanished age. Then the spiteful crack of a bullet passed his ear and the acrid smell of powder told him that their foes were material enough. Clarney cursed. In their fancied security, they had been caught like rats in a trap by the pursuing Arabs. Ancient City of Evil, spoken of in the Necronomicon of the Mad Arab... See, when you get used to saying the Mad Arab Abdul al-Hazred, and then you come across the phrase the Mad Arab al-Hazred, it's hard to say because you want to say Abdul, and then it crashes into al-Hazred, and you end up going Abhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhabhab
because I know that he doesn't like when I just run away and go record. And then he comes in and follows me, and he meows, and he makes noise, and then I have to kick him out. I don't feel bad about it, because this is my thing. With which optimistic observation, it's all gone to hell. It's all just, it's all gone to hell. Whose columns and walls of solid black stone blocks defied this... Nevertheless, I feel the presence of slumbering evil. And never again shall I hear the wind blowing up the Khyber Pass. Everyone say hi to my wife. Hey, what's up? Can I come in? Uh, did I lock the door? Oh, I'm in the back recording. I'm sorry. I'll be right there. <laughs> a fleshless hand sagged outstretched upon the broad marble throne arm, and in its grisly clasp, grisly clasp. I wanted to say clasp and grasp at the same time because grasp, I think, is the word that he's actually looking for, but he used clasp instead. And now it's just. A lot of stuff to get my mouth around. 